our text from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then God said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The word of the Lord. It is good to be with you on this day. I bring you warm, warm greetings from Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And it still amazes me to consider that I am serving there as president. God is amazing, and that's pretty much all I want to say about that. <laughs> I appreciate the invitation to speak from President Richard DuBose as part of this year's summer worship season, and Jessica and I enjoyed our dinner time with he and Jeannie on last night. Very relaxing, very enjoyable, very simple. That's how I enjoy life. And it was good just to be in their company. It is good to be with all of you in person as part of the Montreat community spirit of worship on this day. For any of you who have had at one time or another, and perhaps even now, an association with Louisville Presbyterian Seminary, I simply want to wave at you and say, come on back through at any time. It will be good to see you. For those of you who are associated with us now, I'm looking forward to greeting you at the end of the service. And for all of you from no matter where you come, may you know that God's choicest blessing is a part of your days. We would be remiss, of course, not to acknowledge the wonderful time we have today to acknowledge those who have been and are daddies, papas, abas, babas, those of us who have mentored, who have been guardians, caretakers, caregivers, 
have provided loving bonds for our children, our nieces, our nephews, our grandchildren, any young people who have come into our orbit. If you have provided loving affection for them, loving affection of the right kind, we celebrate you on this Father's Day. It is also important to note that on yesterday we had yet another day of commemoration, a new national holiday, one that has long been honored by black America and is now being recognized by the rest of the country marking the official or legal end of enslavement in the United States in 1865. For black Americans, it is a sobering truth that our very humanity is still being contested by many in our society. What I have learned throughout my years is that history, like Juneteenth, may long be concealed, but justice will never be denied. And so it is on this day that we also celebrate Juneteenth. And for we who are gathered here this morning as the people of God, in the presence of God, for we who long for the living God, who hunger and thirst in our souls to be with God, to you I say, let us worship. All right, we're going to do some work for the next few minutes. So do some soul work. I'm going to walk through a few reflections with you. And I pray that you will be able to stay with me on this journey. You've already seen the title for my message, Mirror to America. Our profession as people of faith in the United States of America and more is to love God and neighbor and to do so as we love ourselves. Our deeper struggle seems to be how to become more faithful, how to be better human beings, how best to speak truth to power and to do so in love. In the public square, we also express our fidelity as Americans to democratic freedoms. For many of us in the church and in society, the beloved community, the expression of our better angels, the search for common ground, this is our heart's ambition. Love, justice, and peace are among our chief preferments. And what we have discovered as human beings is that none of these are very easily gained. The struggle we have as a part of the human condition is to be our own best selves. I would encourage us, my siblings, 
that we will get there together. So help us, God. I was a student here in North Carolina in the 1980s, working on my PhD at Duke, taking courses from the renowned historian John Hope Franklin. When I first learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, the story of Tulsa, one of the most horrific instances of anti-black terrorism in this country, took place 100 years ago this month. It is not a story for the faint of heart. Indeed, it is not taught in our schools. It is not recounted as part of our national narrative. I am always astonished and sore dismayed by how even in 2021, how few people, even with all of the media that has been given to it in recent weeks, still are not aware of this tragedy. John Hope Franklin was a native of Tulsa, and he was a boy at the time of the massacre. I am very proud to say that John Hope Franklin and his beautiful wife, Aurelia, also share the same love of alma mater that Jessica and I share, Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. John Hope Franklin was born in 1915. He endured the strict segregation laws and practices of Jim Crow racism and confronted America's ardent racism through the shifting context of World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, the Cold War, and the Civil Rights Movement. A brilliant scholar, dedicated to the freedom of black people and all people, he was the researcher behind the scenes whose unprecedented work on the legislative history of the 14th Amendment, in case you don't remember your history, the 14th Amendment is equal protection of the laws. But his work led to the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund landmark Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, which desegregated, at least on paper, our public schools. The title of John Ho Franklin's autobiography is Mirror to America. And it is from his autobiography, and it is in my deep respect for him that I named my sermon today. A pioneering scholar, activist, and humanitarian who meant so much to so many, and certainly to me. The Tulsa Race Massacre is not an anomaly. It is not a blip on the screen. It is American history. It is part of a painful legacy of anti-black sentiment, violence, denigration, and death that dates back to our nation's beginnings. 
The early 20th century had already given rise to anti-black riots in Atlanta, Springfield, Illinois, East St. Louis, Illinois, and other cities north and south as black bodies were killed, burned, decimated in a myriad of fashions. The years 1919 to 1924 saw the end of World War I and the intensification of anti-black lynching, vigilantism, and mob violence as black soldiers returned from the war, believing that democracy was meant for them only to discover that it wasn't. In 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma's Greenwood District, was called Black Wall Street for its economic progress home to 10,000 African-Americans, hundreds of flourishing businesses, and exuberant entrepreneurial spirit, it would not be exempt from the racist slaughter. If you go back and look at the history of the United States, almost without exception, what you will find if you do just a little bit of historical digging is that every riot, Every massacre that occurred from the hands of whites perpetrated on the bodies of blacks was because there was an outcry about sex. The United States has a sordid history. And what we also often find is that when we do a little bit of historical excavation we determined that almost without exception, the stories that are claimed have seven, seldom occurred. This is the United States of America. And it is the United States of America that once the massacre took place with hundreds of black people being killed in Tulsa, once it was over, the United States then did what we do best swept the story under the rug to such a deafening extent that a hundred years later, we would not even remember that it had taken place. Our country is filled with such stories and not too far from here, we know about another that I'll mention in a moment, but whether we are talking about our pride in the United States as we the people, or whether we are talking about our pride in the Christian community as one body, we know that it is all too often fallacious how we have treated one another. I would submit to you that absent a national reckoning with America's original sin, called racism, there can never be peace in our land, except the United States of America looks in the mirror and decides that we truly believe in justice and reconciliation. Atonement cannot come. There is a virus, a contagion, a pathology in our land that long precedes the current coronavirus. Its forms are myriad, its names are many, 
white supremacy, white nationalism, white privilege, racism, nativism, secession, segregation, vigilantism, states' rights, the U.S. caste system, meritocracy, and more. I could go on and on and on. America's present racial circumstance is but a continuum of irrefutable occurrences in our country that we still want very much to conceal, to act as if they never occurred. And so we have done something tragic to ourselves. We have codified in law and legislation all manner of hierarchy and rank order of human inequality and inequity. We find that this is not only the case with racism, but a kindred spirit that divides our ability to be human community across lines of sexism, misogyny, and homophobia to our rabid anti-immigrationism and utter desecration of the earth itself. Often, all too often, tragically often, our faith communities have been complicit. Systemic racism in the United States of America is absolutely familiar to virtually every person of African descent in this country, and yet, it confuses much of the rest of the nation. We can change the trajectory of our land. We can engender solidarity by recognizing that if we want to get beyond racism, embrace our common humanity, aspire to a dream that is God's dream, not yet known. Down through the centuries, in the post-Reconstruction and early segregationist years, I can hear the incomparable journalist and women's rights activist Ida B. Wells Barnett, armed with pistols, traveling the country by train, documenting and reporting crimes against black humanity, the lynchings of African-American children, women, and men in every quarter, every sector of the United States. Speaking before an audience in Chicago, she said, and I quote, lynching is not the creature of an hour, the sudden outburst of uncontrolled fury, or the unspeakable brutality of an insane mob. It represents the cool, calculating deliberation of intelligent people who openly avow that there is an unwritten law that justifies them in putting human beings to death without complaint, under oath, without trial by jury, without opportunity to make defense, and without right of appeal. A litany of racial oppression and criminalizing contempt for black bodies counters the myth of America's triumphalist past. The 1862 riots in New York, Atlanta's infamous day of death in 1906, the volatile Red Summer of hate in 1919, and they called it the Red Summer because so many black people were killed that blood was running in the streets. We remember these things. 
1955 lynching of Emmett Till, the bombing in 1963 of a Birmingham church and the killing of four little girls as they came out of Sunday school, urban uprisings in Detroit, in Detroit, Watts and Newark during that same era, and mass unrest everywhere in 1968 following the death of Martin Luther King Jr., we remember. The bitter aftermaths of Fred Hampton, Rodney King, Hurricane Katrina, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, the Charleston Nine, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. We remember the list is so long, the names are so many, the death is so vast that I would lose breath if I tried to recount it. Through seasons of death and grief, black America has continued to find hope where hope should not exist. Nor has the nation's forms of terrorism and racial ethnic cleansing been used only against black people. I want to be very clear about this. Native peoples across the land, right down the street here in North Carolina, we know about what happened in Cherokee if you are from this state. Forced by gunpoint from Cherokee and points west to continue to go further west, away from their ancestral homelands, traveling the devastating trail of tears. Anti-Catholic terrorism, anti-Polish bigotry, anti-Italian sentiment, anti-Semitic activities, Japanese internment camps, the police raid of the Stonewall Inn, transphobia, Islamophobia, anti-immigrationism, and anti-Asian violence are but variations on a theme. Nativism, vigilantism, exceptionalism, isolationism, and xenophobic fear. All manner of repression have collided in the meaning and making of our country. We are a land that is born of violence, and to violence we must renounce. There is an old saying, a dog gone mad no longer knows its master. Now it is true, I don't want to in any way belittle this. We have made significant strides as a people, as a nation. Still, for every advancement made, there is almost inevitably a public backlash. We have gone forward, and then we have taken two steps back. We have made much progress, and then we find ourselves in a constant state of crisis. Always in between these polarities lies the complex and discordant truth about the state of freedom and justice in our own day and time. And this brings us then to the biblical passage from Exodus, the familiar story of God appearing to Moses on Mount Horeb in a bush that is aflame with fire yet not consumed. The usual focus of this story is God's instructions to Moses to remove his sandals when standing on holy ground. And most dramatic of all, the disclosure of the divine's name, I am. 
easily overlooked amidst this excruciating and exciting treasure trove of insights for preaching and teaching and reflection, however, is the geopolitical occasion for this moment. The geopolitical. What happens in this sacred encounter? Israel has been subjected to centuries of enslavement and violent oppression. Now, the state has issued orders for the young male children to be drowned in the Nile River. As a group, the Israelites are the targets of profiling and genocide. Does that sound familiar? As a community, they cry out angrily, fiercely, and intently to their God. In anguish, people and prophets say, How long, O Lord? How long? In response to the terror and abuse now stalking the people, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, a bush ablaze with divine indignation, a bush aflame with justice, and God calls Moses to liberate the Hebrews from their oppression. God calls Moses to engage in struggle on behalf of God's people. There is another old saying, our people have need of us. Church, today more than ever, the world needs our voice, our witness as people of faith to act with God, to transform the world, to be the good news we seek, to proclaim release to the incarcerated, and the recovery of sight to those unable to see, to set the oppressed in society free, to proclaim that the acceptable year of our God is now. Our world has need of us to stand with courage and not only proclaim these things, but to act as if we believe them. We are called to love and lead, to resist and reform, to disrupt the status quo and model possibilities that recognize our humanity in common, to love with a love that renews life. As believers, we can dare to dream God's dream for a more just and verdant world. The Kairos moment is here. The present moment is a gift. The inclusive call of God is to a whosoever church and world where no human being is left on the side of the road, where no one is discarded for reason of social status, but all are received as a part of the divine equation. With such a faith, we can begin to see with new eyes that beloved community is happening. Politically, we can even see a more perfect union too. God's movement waiting for us, calling to us, longing for us to bring to all of the children of the living God a belief that they are part 
of this universe. For so long, I have heard the voice of God in the cries of my people, the spirit of my people, the spirit of the ancestors and the elders, the children and the young and everyone. I hear my ancestors saying aloud, hands up, don't shoot. I can't breathe. I hear them speaking to me. I hear my people marching, speaking, voting, policy making, getting vaccinated, filled with the power of the cosmic, driven by the divine imperative, standing on the right side of history. I hear my people declaring that black lives matter. Montreat, I am so very glad for your witness as a people of faith. I look forward to when we leave here on this day and as I meet many of you from cities and towns and in rural and urban contexts across this country in the weeks and months to come, that we will be able to share together, to reflect together, to pray together, to worship together, knowing that we are creating a world where all will be set free. We have a magnificent opportunity before us to spark change. The challenges we face are many. Sexual harassment and sexual assault are pervasive. Income inequality is rampant. Health disparities abound. Food deserts exist. So many people lack for shelter. Our children are in need of care. The earth cries aloud. Congregation, Montreat, our work as Christians is far from done. We must relearn, reimagine, and rebuild our world. For God is with us. And if you have despair, simply know this, that you and I and we have more power than we ever knew because the God of Israel, the God of Exodus, the God of the burning bush is still the God of our days. This is my prayer to you, that we would become companions on the way, holding a mirror to America, asking us to become better than we have been to this day. World without end.